You know, somebody once told me the only topic people are more uncomfortable talking about in church than sex is money. And so since we covered that last week, we'll see about this week. Hey, when you walked in, you got a handout in your bulletin, and I want you to take that out right now. Everybody in the room, if you'll pull out that handout that's in your bulletin, at the top of that handout is a sentence, and I'm going to look for you to fill this sentence in this morning as we begin. The sentence is this, talking about money makes me feel blank. What I want you to do is write down the first word that comes to mind. Don't edit yourself. Don't think about it. We're just going with total gut reaction. If you don't have a pen, borrow one from a friend. I want everybody in the room to participate today. Talking about money makes me feel blank. And once you write down your word, I want you to turn to the person next to you and tell them your word. Go. Okay, some of you guys are having way too much fun, so let's, let's bring it back here. Others of you are like, yeah, that, that's, that's one word for it. You know, so I've asked this question before to friends, and I've gotten some interesting responses. One of my friends said, talking about money makes me feel poor. One of my friends said, talking about money makes me feel sweaty, which the video clip is a great, you know, example of. Talking about money makes me feel stressed, anxious, angry, ashamed, judged, and blessed. You know, there's, there's just lots of different reactions. And whenever you bring up the subject of money in church, it can be nerve-wracking both for whoever's in my position and whoever's in your position for a few reasons. One of the reasons is that in the past, you may have been in a church where that church or those church leaders misused money. And so because of that, there's some anxiety in talking about it. To be honest, there's a lot of bad teaching out there about money and about giving. There's a certain channel on your TV that, you know, majors in that. And then there, this is an area where, if we're honest, we're really afraid to be vulnerable and transparent because a lot of us feel sweaty, stressed, anxious, angry, and ashamed. And so because of it, this is just a subject that we tend to avoid. If you're here for the first time today, you said, crud, I picked the money Sunday to come to church, you know? (laughs) But there's two reasons why I'm preaching about this today. I wanted to share these before we jumped into it. The first one is this. Today, I don't want something from you. I want something for you. We've already collected the offering. We're not going to collect another one later, so don't worry. And we didn't set it at the end of the service so I could say this with a lot of honesty. I don't want something from you today. I want something for you. This is the leading cause of divorce in America. Money. It's not pornography. It's not adultery. It's fights over money. And what tears me apart is that Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly, but many of us don't experience that because of angst and conflict in our lives over money. And so what I want for you is I want you to discover the abundant life God gave his life for in this area. I I don't want a portion of your money. I want you to experience freedom with 100% of your life, which is the second reason why we're doing this message today. We're in a series called Freedom, Breaking Free from Our Idols. 
And I know of no area where more people are tied up in bondage than money. And just because it's uncomfortable and just because the church has done a poor job in the past is not a good enough reason for us to wuss out. And so I want to talk about what does it mean for us to discover freedom in this area of our life today. And so the big idea this morning that we're going to talk about is this, that our relationship with money reveals the state of our hearts. Our relationship with money reveals the state of our hearts. See, when we talk about money, we're not just talking about dollars and cents. We're talking about our hearts. That's why so many of us feel such angst and shame and fear around money, no matter how much we have. And there's a context I want to introduce you to. The Bible talks a lot about money. 42% of the parables of Jesus involve money. I think that's because he knew that people, even in his day, had the experience we have in our day when it comes to money. And so even though his parables weren't about money, they were about the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God in the lives of people, Jesus knew people would understand money, and so he used it as a teaching tool. But it isn't just Jesus. There are over 2,000 Bible verses that concern money. And if there's that much real estate in the Bible given to a subject, we can't avoid it. We have to talk about it, no matter how uncomfortable it is for us. The thing is, God is not obsessed with your money. He's, he's got resources kind of taken care of. He had money before you got here, and he'll have money after you leave. But here's what God knows. God wants our hearts, and he knows the competition. If our relationship with money reveals the state of our hearts, then God wants to know what is competing for what I want. And I think money, unlike anything else, competes for our hearts. Throughout this series, we've been using a definition from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, to help us understand idols. And if you're here for the first time, I want to remind you of this definition. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Idols don't have to do with how much money is in your bank account. Idols have to do with your heart, where you give your heart to something, where your heart is absorbed by something, where you look to something for what only God can give. And I think many of us deceive ourselves in thinking we don't have idols. I've heard conversations from our groups where people go, I'm not sure if I have an idol or if it's just a priority issue. There's a sin underneath all sins in the Bible, and it's the sin of pride. And if you go, I don't have any idols in my life, I'm not struggling with any of them, though, I think you have a problem and it's called pride. Because I have idols. And I've been dealing with them in this series. We haven't got to mine yet, but we will. But I think God's known this because when sin first entered the world, God gave some commandments to his people. And the first one was, you shall have no other gods before me. This is his first command. Flee idolatry. And he said, not enough, you shall know that God's before me. That word before is in my presence, and God's presence is everywhere. So God's saying, don't have any other gods in my presence anywhere in your life. The second commandment, he said, 
You shall make for yourself no carved image or any likeness of any kind that is in heaven above or on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Look at the last sentence. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. If you say, I don't have a problem with money as an idol, well, what do you serve to get money? Many of us give 50 weeks of our lives to be able to get money to live. Many of us have been given decades of our lives to jobs that we hate so that we can feel secure financially. Many of us are serving money. And this morning, I want to take us to a passage where Jesus talks about how money can become our idol. It's in Luke chapter 12. If you have a Bible, if you want to turn it on or open it up, Luke 12 uh, Luke is one of the three, one is the, one, it's the third of the fourth biographies of Jesus. And in this passage, Luke, who's a doctor who wasn't there for the life of Jesus, but recorded a detailed research account of it. In this passage, Luke is going to help us via this teaching of Jesus answer a question. And that question is, why is it so easy for money to become an idol? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. Why is it so easy for money to become an idol? And beginning in verse 13 of Luke 12, this is what we read. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? So likely a younger son was asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, make my brother even out our inheritance because he's supposed to get more. And Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he said to them, take care. I think that's the repeated slide. Okay, we're going to go ahead so we can finish the passage. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And the rich man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. The first lesson we learn about why we struggle with money is that we're looking for security. Money becomes an idol for us because we're looking for security. It's a human thing to look for that. And Jesus speaks to this in in verse 15. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That word guard is this idea of a sentinel, a soldier whose job it is to protect. Jesus is saying, be on your guard and be a sentinel in your own life against all covetousness. Now, I know you guys use covetousness about 20 times this week in your conversations online, but covetousness is a phrase that means you want what someone else has. And so Jesus says, take care and be a soldier protecting yourself against the desire for what someone else has. And it's never been easier to see what someone else has than it is today. And he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The word consist is this idea of being rooted. Your life is not defined by how much you have or how little you have or what you have in comparison to someone else. And then Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a story to help you understand this. He says, there there was a rich man whose lands produced plentifully. Now think about it. He was rich, and then he had a plentiful harvest. I mean, a lucky guy. I mean, 
He already has it made, and then he gets more. You hate those people, you know? They always have more. They always win the lottery. They always, their bracket's always winning the pool, you know? Um, and he says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I mean, it's a big problem to have. I have nowhere to store all my cars. I need to buy a bigger garage. You know, I have nowhere to, to store the things in my house. I need to buy a bigger house. And so this man is trying to secure his future. He's trying to secure his future because in that world, they didn't have stacks and stacks of Benjamins. They had barns and barns full of grain. They had barns and barns full of livestock. That's how you measured wealth in that day. And this man says, if I can just secure this harvest, then I'll be okay. If I have a place to put all this stuff, then I'll be okay. Last week, we introduced a question, and it was this. If I could just have blank, then I would be okay. And there's a lot of us, if we put the words more money in those blanks, it would be an honest assessment. If I could just have more money, then I would be okay. How much is more? Well, more than I have right now. And if that's a true statement for you, if you're looking for more than you have right now to secure you, let me make you a promise. I'm, I'm not a prophet, but I have a prediction of what's going to happen in your life. Um, if you've ever had somebody come over to your house and, and they're over for dinner, you give them kind of the nickel tour of your house, you know, you walk them around and show them things. And, and there are things you don't show them, you know? That closet you stuck all the dirty laundry in, you know, and um, that bathroom you couldn't get to clean yet. And what if later while you're making dinner, you discover them and they're in that closet and they notice all the dirty laundry or they're, they're going to the bathroom in that bathroom. Whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't say you could go in here. That's what Jesus is going to do in your life. He's going to go into all the areas you don't want him to go. He's going to go into all the rooms you haven't cleaned and neatened up. Because if you're putting anything else in this blank other than him, he's going to start dealing with that thing. Because he wants you to look to him for your security. When it comes to Jesus, he's looking for full surrender, not partial obedience. He's looking for full surrender, not partial allegiance. And when we look to anything other than him for our source of security that's going to begin to be something he deals with. And he gets annoying sometimes with the way he deals with those things. I speak this from personal experience, as I'll share in a couple minutes. So the question I have for you here is, what is your source of security? In your own life, when you think about it, you go, man, if I could just take care of this, I would feel secure. Is it a certain amount of money for you to make? Is it paying off certain debt? Is it moving into a certain neighborhood? Is it getting that promotion in your job? Is it, is it getting that car? Is it getting that thing taken care of financially? What is your source of security that if you said, hey, if I could just take care of this, I would be okay? We struggle with idols because we look to them for security. Jesus continues this parable in verse 18. This man, this rich man says, and what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, I guess we're missing that verse. I'll say to my soul, and he says to his soul some stuff, which we'll talk about in a second. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. The guy dies that night. 
after building bigger barns. He says, and the things you prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The second reason we struggle with money as an idol is that we're looking for significance and satisfaction. Each of us in our lives, we're looking for significance and satisfaction. I figured out why that slide wasn't there because it's right here. If you look at this passage, in this three-verse section, this man talks about himself enough. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, in three verses, he refers to himself 12 times. He's so absorbed with himself and satisfying himself and his own sense of significance that he thinks that's where it's at. In the 20th century, Sigmund Freud made his fame by saying that humans were driven by pleasure. Later on, a man named Viktor Frankl came along, and as he worked with people in concentration camps in Nazi Germany in the 40s, he debunked Freud's theory, and he said that people aren't driven by pleasure, they're driven by meaning. And if people can find meaning in life, that's where it's at. He even said that if you can find meaning in suffering, it ceases to be suffering. And he learned that in the concentration camps. You see, we are meaning-making machines. You and I, we seek to find meaning in everything. One of the first questions a child asks, what is it? Why? If you've ever had a child or known a child during the why phase, bless you, you know, everything is why. What happens when something bad happens in our life? What do we ask? Why? We're seeking to make meaning out of things. And in our world, we look for meaning and worth and value and significance in some very shallow areas. When you meet up with some people, one of the first questions they'll ask you is, what do you do? Because what you do gives your life significance in this world. They'll say, where do you live? Because where you live is a sign of significance. What do you drive? Where'd you go for spring break? All of these are comparison tools that we use that give us a sense of significance as compared to other people. Whenever I meet a pastor, you know what the first question he asks me is? How big is your church? as if that defines my significance. It's actually really sick when you go to a pastor's conference. There's always people posturing around and, you know, whoever has the biggest church is the one with the most attention. And before you judge us and think we're the only ones who struggle, isn't this what we do whenever we look at our phones? Does anybody care? Do I matter? Significance and satisfaction. And when you have 10 and that little notification, 10 people care what I had for lunch? Yes, I'm okay. <laughs> and we laugh because it's true. See, many of us say, if I could just have more money, then I'd be happy. The problem is you said that when you made 40000 and now you make eighty, and you're still not happy. And if you'd make 100 it would be 200 And if you made half a million, it'd be a million. 
I mean, are you really happier now with what you make than you were when you got right out of college? Did all that money make you more happy? Or in the words of a famous rapper, is it just more money and more problems? See, a lot of us say, man, if I could just have more money, then I'd be happy. Princeton did a study about this, and they said once you make more than $75,000 per year, there is no discernible difference in your emotional well-being and day-to-day happiness. Now, if you make less than $75,000, you're like, hey, this is my proof. I need to make more money. (laughs) But it just puts a dollar figure on a reality we all know. That figure of how much more do you need to be happy is always just a little bit more than you make right now. It's a, it's a finish line you never cross. It's always moving. And some of us say, you know, well, if I had more money, then I, then I could be generous. Then I could give it away. I just want to get enough money to be able to provide for myself and then get help other people. That's just not true. In 2001, the Chronicle of Philanthropy did a study and said the wealthiest Americans with earnings in the top 20%, they gave an average of 1.3% of their income to charity. The bottom 30% gave 3.2%. That's over double. We deceive ourselves if we make more money into thinking we're giving more money away because it's a bigger chunk, but it's a smaller percentage. One study I read said that the poorest of poor give triple by percentage than the wealthiest of wealthy. See, the thing is, the more money you get, the more money you have to have, the less you can give away. And as we learned last week, whatever you have to have has you. And until you deal with this, no matter how much money you make, this will be an idol in your life. And I speak this from personal experience. And so this morning, I'm going to do something I haven't done before. I'm going to ask my wife to join me on stage, and we're going to share with you a little bit of our story. So if you'd welcome Danny to the stage this morning. Thanks, guys. Hey. Hi. How's it going? I'm great. Oh, yeah. Awkward and uncomfortable. This is is my thing. This is not her thing. So, um... (laughs) But this is a story that I can't tell by myself. Um, so, uh, Dan, this is a picture from, this is an engagement photo of ours. Uh, Got to love the facial hair on me. Um, and uh, so this was the spring of 2008 when we got engaged. Um, and, Danny, tell us a little bit about where you were financially when we got engaged. I graduated law school in 2005. And um, when I graduated, I, my parents had told me, hey, you... Uh, will appreciate your education more if you pay for it yourself. So I went to uh, two private schools, undergrad and grad school, and graduated with $210,000 in debt. Just just, um, school loans. Um, When I met Scott, I was paying about $1,600 a month just to pay pay school loans, and mostly in just interest. Um, I had some big events happen just before we we got engaged, uh, and not good big events, uh, bad big events. I had, um, well, I ran a marathon, and in running the marathon with the organization I was running, I had to raise money. And if I didn't raise the amount that I needed, they put it on my credit card. So $2,000 on my credit card. Then, two days before I went to run that marathon, I uh, got in a car accident. That was $3,600 that I had to borrow from my parents to pay for my car to be fixed and $2,600 to pay for the other car to be fixed. Um, 
And then that fall, my boss died in a plane crash. So I was without a job for several months and was paying most of my bills on my credit card. When we um, got engaged, I had been working very hard to pay that off, but I still had $11,000 on my credit card. So uh, when we got engaged, I was working part-time at a church and in seminary. I think I was making about $19,000 a year and living in central Phoenix, which is not good math if you have lived in that area. Um, And so for me, I had a lifestyle that I wanted to live that did not match my income. I think my mom said when I was in high school, she said, son, your eyes keep writing checks, your bank account can't cash. And, um, and that became a problem. And so I began living every month on Visa and MasterCard. I joked a few weeks ago about my addiction to caffeine, and I paid for that in large part on my credit card. And so when we got married, I was making $19,000 a year, but I, we, I had $10,000 in credit card debt. And every month I was trying to figure out what can I pay in cash what do I have to pay in cash and everything else I paid on my credit card? Um, I was working at a church, and things had gotten so bad that I had stopped giving to that church. I wasn't giving a cent. And, w- and we were in a pretty, pretty bad spot. So together, we were um, about $220,000 in debt without a mortgage when we got engaged. So we, uh, we went to some premarital counseling, um, which I remember fondly. Um, <laughs> why don't you share your memory of the night we discussed our finances at premarital counseling? I don't remember it the way he does. <laughs> um, I, I had been taught by my parents. My dad actually made me pay, um, pay bills for about two months when I was uh, a teenager because he wanted me to see what it was like to have a household. So I had an idea of what I needed to do as an adult to get out of debt, and I was trying to do that. Um, so when we went, to, we went to counseling to talk about money, I was like, oh, yeah, this is, this is easy. There's just a whole bunch of stuff that we have to cut out of the budget. That's not a problem. I'm barely spending anything, um, just paying my loans. Um, so a, a lot of our conversation, um, I recall us talking about needs versus wants. And then also, why do I want to buy this? Or why am I spending money on this? So the conversation I remember was, guess what Scott needs to cut out of the budget? Guess what Scott needs to stop spending money on? Guess what we need to do? Um, and I was all about, I love, I love making budgets. I love being the money boss. Um, it's fun for me to be like, oh, what can we do to make this better? What can we do to tighten it up and pay more money toward debt? That's not how I remember it. Um, <laughs> I remember driving home really, really angry because um, it was the first time I realized that my financial decisions were going to impact somebody else. And they had been impacting somebody else. I mean, I wasn't giving to the church that was paying my salary, um, but it was the first time I realized, okay, this is really going to affect somebody else. Um, And I realized that night that um, I don't think money was my idol. I mean, I didn't have any of it. I wasn't working 80 hours a week to get more of it, but money was the, the symptom of my idol. And for some of us, it's not that we worship money. It's that when we look at how we spend money, it leads us to the thing that's our idol. And for me, my idol was anything that helped me get through the stress that I was in. Because I was taking beyond a full-time load, working full-time hours for part-time pay, um, and everything I purchased was something that would help me to numb out the stress or the exhaustion or the overwhelming feeling I had. And when I realized that I could no longer do that, I was terrified. 
because I didn't know how I was going to get through all of that without all those crutches. Um, but I was able to, to share that night um, the angst I felt about talking about money, the, the shame I felt. My parents had, from where I sat, done a great job with money, and I hadn't seen the struggle they'd gone through, and so I couldn't talk to them about this. I didn't feel I could because I felt ashamed that I didn't measure up to the standard they'd set. And um, I knew that night driving home that it was going to be one of the challenging pieces of the first part of marriage for us to, to work this out. And it was. So we started cutting things out when we got married. Yes, we did. And just to be clear, um, I, my, I may not idolize money, but when Scott put that phrase up, um, if I could just have blank, I would be okay. First thing that comes to my mind every time, if I could just pay off my loans, I would be okay. If we could just pay off these loans, we could be okay. But having that mindset can be dangerous. Um, we, in our first three years of marriage, um, we had no cable. This was back when there were Blackberries and not smart, not um, iPhones. So Scott didn't have a Blackberry. We both had sli- we both had flip phones. He actually got rid of his Blackberry. We had no internet. Um, we didn't eat out. Well, we rarely ate out. Every once in a while, we would. We had to be creative on dates. Um, we were paying over $2,000, probably closer to $3,000 in debt a month, and that doesn't include rent, eating, all of that. Um, Scott, at one point, was working three part-time jobs. He was working part-time at the church, he was working part-time at Starbucks, and he was working part-time during spring training. Um, I would pick him up sometimes at midnight from his night shift at Starbucks. Because we had one car. Because we had one car. We didn't have two cars. We had one car. Um, And I used public transportation because I worked for the county. I could use public transportation, but we saved money that way. Um, There was a constant evaluation of what we were spending. Was this a want? Is this a need? What what are we doing? Why am I buying this? Um, And so... It just, I mean, there were conversations all the time. Every, Scott dreaded a Friday when I wasn't busy at work because he'd get an email from me <laughs> because I looked at our bank account and I'm like, mm, we're spending too much on this. We need to do a better job. Um, yeah, those Friday emails were fun. Um, <laughs> and what I'll tell you is in those first two years, we paid off $25,000 in personal debt. Um, and, uh, and so um, I remember standing at the church I was at at the time and cutting up my credit cards in the middle of a sermon like this. Um, and uh, it was so gratifying of the, the day we, we, we paid off that last credit card. It was a little bit ironic. I went to work at Starbucks to pay off the debt I had made by going to Starbucks, but that's another, <laughs> that's another sermon for another day. Um, but I'll tell you that, um, th- as I said, this is the number one reason why couples divorce, and I see why. Um, because I can remember the, the, um, the fights we had over money and what we were going to keep and what we were going to cut. Um, and if you don't have the courage to have this kind of conversation with somebody, it is very easy for even the best of us to get defeated. And that's why I'm so passionate about having this conversation is that um, everybody struggles. Um, and because we feel the shame of this, we never get the help that we need. Um, and, uh, while I joke about Danny being the money boss and, um, the, the hard emails I got, we would not have gotten out of debt if it hadn't been for her. Um, we wouldn't have made it to where we are today if it wasn't for her. 
Um, and, uh, and I'll share more in the future about what we've been able to do because of getting out of debt. Um, but that's why we're talking about this today. And this wasn't a story that I could tell on my own. So do you have anything else? No. Okay. <laughs> Would you thank her for sharing with us this morning? So on the back of your handout, there are some next steps. And um, I'll be honest, we're going to... F- we're going to finish this sermon next week. Um, we're going to talk about this idol part two because today was really about why is this such a problem? And next week is going to be about, so what do we do in response? Um, but to do that, I'm going to need you to do some homework this week. And so the first next step is I want you to review um, some diagnosis questions this week on your own and with your community group. The first one is how often do you compare what you have and make to others? That'll be a fun one. Um, second, how much, anxi- how much anxiety do finances add to your life? How much anxiety do finances add to your life? Third, what is your attitude towards giving money away? Four, if you're married, how often do you and your spouse fight about money? And then five, what is your current conversation with God regarding money? You know, I I think for a lot of us, the truth is the freedom we want is on the other side of a conversation we're avoiding. And if you don't have the courage to ask these questions and to deal with these realities and maybe have a conversation with somebody who lives with you or a conversation with somebody who knows you, then you're going to stay in bondage. And either your frustration with where you are will eclipse the fear of that conversation or the fear of that conversation will keep you stuck. The second next step is I want you to ask someone who is close to you what they observe about your relationship with money. That could be a terrifying conversation. But we are really, really, really good at deceiving ourselves. I, I deceived myself into thinking that my, my problem with money and debt was only affecting me, and it wasn't. And when we had an honest conversation about my attitude and my relationship with money, we began to find some freedom. The third thing I want you to do this week, and this is going to be the most engaged, is I want you to keep a spending journal for the next seven days. I want you to write down what you purchase and why you purchased it. Because I think for a lot of us, that second question is key. We don't buy things because we need them. We buy them because they give us a feeling of being okay or being better than somebody else. And um, yeah, so this is part one. We'll deal with diagnosis this week and then next week we'll look at the solution. But I hope you heard in the story that Danny and I shared that we're not perfect. We still have these conversations. I still get those emails. We're still working on it. And more than anything else, what I want for you is I want you to discover freedom. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that we can have this conversation in an honest way. All of us are having conversations with you when it comes to money, and some of them are really intense, and some of them are really difficult. But God, until we talk about this, we're not going to find freedom. Until we deal with the place that we are, we won't be free. And so God, we invite you into this space. We know that you want our whole hearts. 
We know that you gave your son so that we could be free and not just partially, but fully. And we pray that you would do great work in our hearts in this season and in the places where we have looked to money for what only you can give. God, I pray that we would discover freedom. So if there is shame, if there is fear, if there is guilt, if there is anxiety, if there is stress, if there is worry, if there's a marriage in this room that's hanging by a thread because of this fight, God, I pray that your spirit would be present there and that you would give us the courage to invite you into that space. God, we want resurrection here and not just on April 16th, but every day. We pray that you would be at work in our hearts. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.